So Heavenly Father, we, we do pray this morning that, that you, would, you would move among us uh, as, we, as we, we turn our hearts to your word, that, that you would change us, that, that our, our affections would, would be stirred. Um, to, to love you more, to love, um, to love each other more. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't, I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that, that we live in, in a culture that's uh, constructed around the self. Uh, I don't think it matters what generation you're in. If we, if we look around, um, there's this increasingly obsessive pursuit of the self. Now, all the way back in 1979, uh, a man named Christopher Leish wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism. Uh, and in it, he said this. He said, the media, this is 1979, the media give substance to and thus intensify narcissistic dreams of fame and glory, encourage common people to identify themselves with the stars and to hate the herd and make it more and more difficult for them to accept the banality of everyday existence. That was 1979. The media intensifies these narcissistic dreams of fame and glory. I think the only difference now is that today we are the, the stars of our own media, uh, and we, we produce and create the attention that we crave. So all of us are inhabiting a world that's constantly sort of centered on ourselves, centered on our preferences, our needs, our wants. Uh, And even more than that, our bubbles kind of confirm for us on a daily basis that what I think, what I believe is is absolutely right, and anyone that differs from me is probably crazy. Um, And what's so insidious about this is that most of the time we're blind to it, aren't we? Right? We can't see it. Uh, and our hearts are idle factories. And so what happens? On one hand, you've got a world that's telling you that you're the most important, and you have a heart that is prone to that message. It's, it's a bad combination. Uh, the American novelist David Foster Wallace, you've probably heard this quote before. He's not a Christian. He, he put it like this. He said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is pretty much that anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says, if you worship money and things... If they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth, he says. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, he says, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Now, he's writing from a non-Christian perspective, but you see that he's hit on a truth there, right? What you worship determines who and what you become. It's built into 
the universe that that's, that's how things work. We become like what we worship, either for ruin or restoration. It's formative. So what happens to the person who's incessantly thinking of themselves, right? How they look, what others are thinking about them, whether they're being perceived as smart enough, how they can build a, a following, how they can get a newer car or newer house. What happens to that person? Well, these people aren't known for their love, right? They become radically, destructively self-centered. In other words, they become what they worship. Now, this morning, we're jumping into 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter that's probably some of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. You've probably heard these verses read at a wedding at some point. Love is patient. Love is kind. But... What's perhaps surprising about this chapter is that in context, it's actually a rebuke. You see, the love that Paul writes about in this chapter is is a radical antidote to, to this kind of life that we've just talked about. It's a love that's impossible for us to exercise apart from a supernatural work of grace. And it's a love that will profoundly reshape and disorient your life from around the self. But here's the thing, that alone which can create this type of love in the human heart is not found in the human heart. It's found outside of the human heart. And more specifically, it can only be found in the love of God. And here's the good news. The love that Paul writes about can be delivered into the human heart. So this morning we're going to look at just three verses from the start of chapter 13. So I hope you've got your Bible with you. I hope you've opened it up to the to the beginning of chapter 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move or remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is the word of the Lord. So there's three questions I'd like for us to consider this morning. First, what is love? Why do gifts require love? And how do I exercise the gifts in love? So what is love? The love that Paul writes about in chapter 13 is completely different than what we might typically have in mind when we use the word, right? We love this word, love. We might use it a bit too much. If you were to look, like I did, at the word frequency charts for the Billboard Top 100 songs, you would see that love has by far and away been the top word for every decade since they started the Billboard Top 100 charts. It's not even close. It's a runaway. We might use the word a bit much, right? I love my kids. I love coffee. I love a good book. I love my wife. I love going on trips. I love the way the cheese on the nachos gets a little bit crispy on the edges. Paul is obviously talking about a different kind of love. It's a love that that has the power, or better yet, flows from the power and energy that can change the human heart. It flows from God himself. 
You see, to understand what Paul means by this word, we need to let the scriptures define it. So listen to 1 John 4.10. It says, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. What is love? In some sense, I can't tell you. I can only show you. Right? I can only point you to the cross. That's love. That's the definition of love. That's our only definition. Love is the manifestation of God's heart toward you, his people, most fully seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to understand love, the definition is a person. Listen to to C.S. Lewis. He says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous people or creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there's no tenses in God, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. He says, if I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. This is love. Now listen to what what God says in the Old Testament to to the prophet Ezekiel. You've probably heard this before. He says, I'll give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You you see how that, that works? The mystery of the gospel is that God loves us in such a way that it changes us. He gives us a new heart, a heart that's that can feel again, a heart that that loves others or is able to love others the way that we've been loved. Now, we're only covering the the introduction to this chapter this morning, but if you peek down through the following verses, you'll see, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, you see Paul describe the attributes of love. Love is patient, love is kind. Let's just take one. Love love isn't irritable. Love never gets irritated. That was my wife laughing. (laughs) We don't live up to that, right? You know, the audacity of of someone looking, someone else looking for a parking spot at Costco at 2 o'clock on a Saturday. Irritation, right? It seems like the more you love a person, the more they can irritate you. Have you ever experienced being late for something and coming into contact with a three-year-old that wants to do up the little straps on her sandals? Or, I'm a teacher, uh, a student that wants to tell you about their rock tumbler when you just want to eat your lunch, right? I'm just trying to eat a ham sandwich and mark some poetry written by grade nines, and you want to tell me about your rocks. Anyway, what these moments reveal is that there's a disconnect between what's happened in my heart and how it's functioning, right? There's a disconnect between what I believe and what I know 
and what I do because I'm in the process of being transformed. Right, day to day into the image of the one who loved me and gave his life for me. And there's this process in the Christian life that, that I think the word congruence is the best way to put it. Like we're trying to, to make our lives line up with what we already are. Um, the poet Gerard Hopkins wrote a sonnet. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. Um, but he touched on, on this idea. Listen to this. He says, As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw, draw flame, each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, What I do is me, for that I came. So Cole's notes here. Essentially he's saying, Things do what they're made to do. Right? Birds soar in the heavens because that's what they, they've been made to do. Now listen to what he says. He says, I say more, the just man justices keeps grace. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Eugene Peterson writing about this, he said, Hopkins' final image is not of us finally achieving what the bird does simply because they're a bird. His final image is Christ, who lives and acts in us in such ways that our lives express the congruence of inside and outside, the congruence of means and ends. Christ as both the means and the end playing through our limbs and eyes to the Father. The Christian life, he says, is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means, congruence between what we do and the way we do it, between what's written in Scripture and, and our living out what's written, congruence between a ship and its prow between preaching and living, between sermon and what's lived in both the preacher and the congregation, the congruence of the word made flesh in Jesus with what's lived in our flesh. So love, real love, in its fullness is acting out, living out the incarnation of Christ to those around us. This is one of the last things Jesus talked about before he went to the cross, isn't it? At the Last Supper in John 13, he, after he'd washed the disciples' feet, including Judas, he told them this. He said, how are, how are people going to know you're, you're my disciples? Here's how they're going to know I sent you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, consider that. Jesus, how are they going to know that, that we're with you? How are they going to know that you sent us? The answer is they're going to look at you. They're going to look at your life. They're going to look at how you love one another, how you, how you care for one another. They're going to see that care. They're going to see how you sacrifice for one another, how you look at each other, how you look for the good in the other, not for the bad. Love like that's not natural, right? It doesn't make sense. 
right? There's, there's some of us here that, like, apart from the gospel uniting us, we're not together in this room. Right? I, you all seem nice, but there's some real differences, right? In age and life stage. Some of us, like, the biggest hobby you have in your life right now is trying to get your kid to go to sleep. And then others, are, you're just like, oh, should we go to Hawaii this winter or Mexico? Right? There's differences in socioeconomic status and political views and ethnic backgrounds, just about everything. But somehow, all of us are brought into a family, and it's a family, it's messy, it's, it's chaotic, it's unconditional. It can be painful sometimes, but it's a family, and there's no escaping it. We have to love each other. And if we look at our verses this morning, Paul says, if... If I do all these magnificent things, if I've got a faith that can move mountains or speak in the tongues of angels, but I don't love my brother and sister, I'm nothing. If I have all knowledge, if my, if my theology is just perfect, if I've boxed up the mysteries of God, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Right? There's, a, there's a wrong way of being right, isn't there? You've met people like this, haven't you, right? They're right and they're mad about it. They have the truth and for some reason it's, it's made them angry and crotchety and arrogant. Really, what, what Paul wants us to see here is that there's a real danger for us to live a life that is incongruent, a life that doesn't line up, right? L- remember last week, we learned in chapter 12 and th- throughout this whole letter, really, that the Corinthian church is struggling to maintain orderly worship and unity in the body. These are gifted people, right? They're, these are, are people that have received extraordinary gifts from the, from the spirit. They're, they're spiritual rock stars. They're the type of, type of Christians that if they showed up in, in your church, you know, three weeks later, they're probably running the, the prayer meeting. And Paul says to them, if you don't have love, you don't have anything. You're nothing. It's a rebuke, a strong rebuke. You see, Paul's teaching the church in Corinth about the place of gifts in the church, which, which leads us to our second question. Why do spiritual gifts require love? Oftentimes, if I'm reading something that's particularly like, important in a, a passage with my students, I'll, I'll pause and I'll, I'll say something like, did you guys see that? Did you notice that? Usually they didn't, but... This passage needs someone to say, stop, like, did you notice that? Did you see that? Because we've read it probably one too many times, right? It sounds like something nice and sweet that, that should be read at a wedding, but it's quite dramatic. Listen to it again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Right, Paul is, it's obvious that he's using some hyperbole in how he describes these gifts, right? No prophet understands all mystery, for example. It's, it's a rhetorical strategy. He's taking... He's talking to people that are a bit puffed up about their, their giftedness. And, and what he's doing is taking their gifts to the extreme. If I'm the most gifted 
teacher or healer or speaker or administrator, but I don't have love. I'm nothing, and I gain nothing. You see, Paul, what we need to notice is that this is, this is a dramatic truth for these Corinthians, is this. You could, you could have spiritual gifts in general, and even miraculous gifts in particular, and not be a Christian at all. Let me say that again. You can have spiritual gifts in general, and even miraculous gifts in particular, and not be a Christian. He says you can speak in tongues, you can have revelations, you can have insights, you can have tremendous faith. Be so committed that you're ready to die for the faith. You could be so radically committed to the poor that you give, give everything away. You could have all of that and not just be spiritually immature, but be nothing, be spiritually dead. Now, you might say, easy there. You just said that Paul was using some hyperbole. Okay. But is the word nothing hyperbole? I think if we look to other texts, we'll see that it's not, right? This is not the only place in the Bible that talks like this. Does Jesus talk like this? He does, doesn't he? Look at Matthew 7, verse... 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, and, but, the one, uh, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You hear that? Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, those things weren't done in my name. His issue with them is that he never knew them. In other words, you're nothing. I I never knew you. It's possible to be used by God to prophesy, to cast out demons, and to be on the path to destruction. This isn't unique in the scriptures. Balaam in the Old Testament, Balaam was someone who is, who is wicked. We're told three times that he's a wicked man. And yet God gave him spiritual revelations and used him as a prophet. And it wasn't a happy ending. Like it wasn't like, and then he turned his life to the Lord and he wasn't a man of God. In the New Testament, you probably have the most clear example of this in the scriptures, Judas. He's one of the 12 disciples. Matthew 10 clearly says that Jesus called to him his 12, not 11, 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. This includes Judas. Called called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And the disciples went out doing this. There's nothing in the Gospels that say like, oh, Judas kind of like hung out and didn't do things and There's nothing that suggests that he was less capable or less gifted. So what do we know? We know that Judas didn't do miracles through his own power. He did them through the power given to him by Jesus. We just read that in Matthew 10. And yet, he never really knew him. He healed people. He did good things, great things, and wasn't a Christian. Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole book on this one chapter of 1 Corinthians, and he said this. Listen to this. He says, A spiritual gift of miracles or speaking does not change a person's inherent nature. 
A gift ability does not require a change of heart as love or holiness does. A gift ability does not change, require a change of heart as love or holiness does. Gifts are like precious jewels with which a body may be adorned, but which do not alter the body's form. But the grace of God and its fruit turns, as it were, the very soul into a precious jewel. So what Edwards is saying is that the spirit of God can operate and use gifts through a person who's not regenerate, a person who's, who's not given their heart to the Lord, but he cannot and he will not use or create spiritual fruit in a person whose heart hasn't been given to the Lord. So in other words, the spirit of God can give you gifts, speaking abilities, tongues, prophecies, leading abilities, the gift of hospitality or administration, without your heart necessarily having been made anew. But he can't give, and it won't give you love and holiness and joy, spiritual fruit, without your heart being changed by the gospel. And therefore, as one writer put it, love is more miraculous than miracles. Christian love, humility, warmth, forgiveness, self-forgetfulness is supernatural. It's, it's a miracle. And the Spirit of God doesn't do that in a heart that's not given itself to him. So think about that. What Paul is saying here is that you can have people in the church that are serving with their gifts, having a positive impact even, counseling people, teaching people, speaking prophetic words, leading others to Christ. You could have people like that, gifted people who don't know Jesus. They've never met Christ. So far from a passage that should just be read at weddings, this is a passage that should shock us and wake us up. Paul says that the supernatural gifts, though usually given to Christians, are not necessarily only given to Christians. Another writer put it like this, it doesn't take a supernatural work of grace in the heart to use a gift, but it does take a supernatural work of grace in the heart to become a person of Christ-like character. So to put it positively then, what are the gifts for? They're for love. Because it's impossible to use them in a way that, that honors God if they're rooted in anything other than love for others, a gospel-fueled love for others. God's not given you gifts so that you could just use them for yourself. Can I tell you a story? When, when my wife and I moved to England back in, in 2014, we, we didn't know anyone. Um, we moved there in January, which is probably like the worst time to go there. Um, it's raining all the time. It was dark. Um, we'd both just graduated and had basically no money. It was a pretty hard couple months. And the first week that we were there, I'd found a church that I wanted, wanted us to check out, and it was a Sunday night service. Um, so I walk into this building from the rain. I'm, I'm by myself. Um, I don't know anyone. Um, I'm feeling pretty, pretty low, cleaning the, the water off my glasses. And a guy walks up to me and introduces himself, says his name's David, and seriously, within like three minutes, we're invited to their house for dinner. Within two weeks of moving to this, this place, where we don't know anyone, we're in someone's house for dinner. Now, what is that? Like, is that just someone being, like, being nice? It's not. It's, 
It's this couple, Dave and Lou, who are exercising their gifts in service of, of the body, the, the gift of hospitality, not just in like throwing a good dinner party, but in, in, in seeking out and welcoming the weary, the lonely. You know, a couple months later, um, Dave and I, this guy, would go to a soccer game or a football game, and on the train, he, he turns to me and says, Sean, can we just pray right now for gospel opportunities? What? Like, that's, he's just a guy that has this sense of, like, I've, I've got gifts and I have to use them. It's this posture, this life posture of being on the lookout for, for opportunities to, to exercise his gifts. What are gifts for? They're not for the self. We see in chapter 12 that the gifts are given for the common good of the church. Right? They're given to empower the church to complete its mission, to share the good news of Jesus in every corner of this world. And if you don't have love, you're using the gifts for something other than that mission, be it self-satisfaction or, or whatever else. So listen, this is why you, you, you are commanded, in fact, once in, in chapter 12 and once in chapter 14, to earnestly desire the gifts. In fact, in chapter 14, Paul says, pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. There's not not a ton of wiggle room there. These are imperatives. Pursue love and desire the spiritual gifts. You see, what's important that throughout this whole section of chapters, Paul's teaching on the gifts, and he's he's not ragging on them at all. Paul is all for the gifts. In fact, in, in chapter 14, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Right? Desiring, pursuing the gifts is, is not optional. So I ask the question, why do, why do the gifts require love? The answer is really quite simple. The gifts require love because love requires the gifts. Here's what I mean. I can't, I can't really love you if I neglect to exercise the gifts that God has given me in order that I might serve you. If God has, has uniquely placed you and I in this church together, which he has, if God has placed both of us in this church together, in this community together, and uniquely gifted both of us, and, and given us gifts for the, for the benefit of the other, we have to exercise them for the other. It's a, it is a mark of disobedience to quench the Spirit. Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. Do not Quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. And why does Paul need to say that? Because there's a real temptation. A real temptation to quench the spirit. Because the exercising of gifts can feel so risky. Whatever it is. Vulnerable even. Right? And so it's tempting to just kind of like put a lid on it. Be the, it's hard to be the person that's, that's putting themselves out there. Right? Bringing a prophetic word to a friend or, or your small group, is, that's hard. It's scary. What if I offend someone? What if I'm wrong? Inviting someone over for dinner and exercising that gift of hospitality, it's hard. Listen, me doing this is not natural. I've been preaching on and off since I was about 21, so almost 10 years, and it still kind of makes me feel sick every time I do it. About 8 a.m. Every, every time I preach, so there's a thought that comes into my head. It's like, why do you do this? Why are you? 
You know, and for a long time, my prayer before I would preach would be something like, God, just help me to honor you and uh, not think or worry too much about them and what they think. Uh, A few years ago, I heard someone say that every time they get up to speak, they pray, Lord, just help me to love your people well. You see the difference there? That's, it's subtle. One prayer is focused on me, flows from a heart that is just concerned about what other people are going to think about me. The other is a heart that doesn't matter about me. It's just about loving God's people. If I can preach an average sermon but I don't have love, what am I? What's the point? So the question is, how, how do I exercise gifts in love? Um, Tim Keller, writing about this, argues that there's really three kinds of people in the church, and therefore three kinds of people in this room. Uh, but the answer is basically the same for each of us. So the first type of person, it's a person that's involved. It's leaders. It's people doing things, people helping other people, people exercising their gifts. This passage is really for you, right? There's a danger that you can have all these gifts and be cold toward God. There's this really subtle danger that for those of us that are engaged in in exercising our gifts, why? Because we can look at what we've done and use the results as evidence of personal fruit, and there's zero connection. We can can say, look at all this. I must be something. Right? I guess God is with me. Look at my success. Look at my small group, how it's running. It's so easy for us to get our identity from what, what you do rather than in what you are. It's too easy to get your spiritual identity from your Christianity rather than from Christ. Paul says, hey, listen up. If you think your work in the church is somehow indicative of what's going on inside your heart, it's not. Paul's saying here that that attitude is the exact opposite of the gospel. It's the exact opposite of of the grace of God. In the gospel, God God comes to you and says, he says to you and says to me, I love you. I love you not because you lead worship, not because you're really good at ushering, not because you're great at praying for people, not because you prophesy, not because you've made a dozen meals for people. Not because you help for a solid week at kids' camp. Not because you lead a small group. Not because you mix sounds. Not because you've sacrificially given to this place for years. I love you because I love you. You're accepted, not because of what you've done, but because of grace. That's the gospel. But what happens when you have gifts, especially really clear gifts, is you start to think, well, God loves me because, because of all that. But I mean, like, really? Look what I'm doing for him. I'm, I'm giving over my body to be burned, so to speak. I must be quite something. You know what that does? It, it smothers the grace in your heart, and you become a person who can't love the people around you, because my goodness, they don't appreciate you, do they? They don't see all that you're doing for them. Listen, are you excelling in ministry, but your prayer life is dead? When people describe you, would they use words like joy and love, 
and peace? Or is it something like sensitive? What are you excited about? Can you, can you talk about what Jesus is doing in your heart for more than a minute or two? Listen, these are questions I'm asking myself. And how, how we answer these questions is going to indicate whether we're operating from the power of the love of God or from something else, from, from maybe from the excitement of exercising a gift. And Paul says if you're operating from something other than the love of God, you're, you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? He doesn't mean annoying by that. That's not, a, that's not an accident that he's described it described it like that. That's pagan worship. And in Corinth, in the pagan temples, it was normal for, for worshipers to come in with cymbals and, and clanging gongs to get the attention of the gods. He's essentially saying, like, if you're, not, if you're not cultivating love in your heart and the source of your identity and your security is in what you're doing rather than in your salvation, you're essentially worshiping like a pagan. You're trying to get God's attention. You're trying to impress everybody. And what's so dangerous about this is that from the outside, the two people, that, the person that's operating from love and the person that's operating from something else, they look so similar. And so the call is to reflect. Now, the second type of person in this room is, is, is the Christian, the church member who's maybe on the outskirts, the person who would say, oh, you know, like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very gifted, uh, you, you know, you're not being asked to, to lead things. You're not front and center. Maybe you get down on yourself. You're not putting yourself out there. You're not looking for ways to exercise your gifts because you think, well, like, what do I really have to offer? Listen to this. In some way, you are falling prey to the same danger that Paul's talking about here. Right? If, if you're using gifts as a measuring stick, you're completely missing the point. Don't you see, like, all gifts are relative. You'll always find someone who is more gifted or less gifted than you. But what's more important? It's love. Of course it's love. And love has no limits. Love is what makes the gifts worth anything. And you could be the most loving person, the most joyful person, filled with the Spirit of God. And you know what? That's, that's what changes people. That's what changes the world. In John 13, Jesus says it like this, is, if you love one another, then, then the world will know. That's what changes, changes the world. If you become known in, in your townhouse complex, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, as, as someone that, that's just consistently and unconditionally loving, that person that's there when things go wrong and you're there to, to help. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, if you cultivate the love of Jesus Christ in your heart, you might be an ungifted speaker. But if you're godly and holy, you'll always be interesting. You might be an ungifted counselor, but if you're godly and holy, you'll change lives. You might be a lousy delegator, a terrible organizer, and don't have leadership gifts, but if you're godly and loving, everyone will follow you. And that's what changes things. It's love. Now there's a final group here. We've got people that are involved. We've got people that are not involved. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're listening going like, what? I'm just trying to live a pretty good life here. Be a good person. Maybe you've, maybe you've never really tasted the gospel. What Paul is saying here 
is that, like, listen, you could give your body to be burned. You could give all your money away for the poor. You could have faith that could move mountains, and it wouldn't be enough if you don't have the love of God. Because what you've really got to do is give your heart to the Lord. Because at the heart of the gospel is a message of receiving the love of God, not earning it. At the heart of the gospel is a message that says we're made right with God, not through anything we've done. It's a message of rescue, of a Savior that that comes to you at your worst, kneels down in the dirt to pick you up. So if this is you, before anything, you need to meet Jesus. You need to know him. You need to receive what he's done for you. And if that's, if that's you this morning, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. You could talk to the person that brought you, or there's other leaders and elders here who would love to talk, talk to you. But I just, if, if you're feeling something in your heart, that go, like you, you're hearing that message for the first time this morning in, in a way that you've never really thought about it before, I just encourage you not to, not to let that, that moment slip away. So the question was simple. How do I exercise my gifts in love? Which is really to ask, how do, I, how do I become a loving person? A person that's obedient to the command to love my sisters and brothers with this unique gifting that the Spirit has given me. How, how do I become a caring person? <laughs> that's a question. <laughs> I don't know of any other way than to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus until your heart is stirred. Consider the love of God. For the love of us, for the love of you, Jesus lost the love of the Father when he was on the cross. You see that? The only way that you can make sense of the love of Jesus is, is to see that the love that he had, he, like he was devastated on the cross for love, for you. And when you see that, when you, when you ponder on that, when you meditate on that, it changes your heart. And little by little, you become a person that's loving. You see, the real test of whether or not you've grasped this is whether, whether or not you see it as miraculous. Does it astonish you that God himself became a man lived a perfect life, and and died on the cross because he loved you. For God so loved the world. Does that astonish you? Does it make you stop asking questions like, well, okay, what do I got to do to get in to heaven? You just say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help me to love like you love. Lord, help me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul and mind and strength, and help me to love my neighbor as much as I love myself. You see, the more you look at his love for you, the more that it really shakes you and and you allow it to shape your heart, the more your love is going to grow for the people around you. And eventually, maybe one day, you come to the place where there's nothing else you could do. You come to the place where you go, I have these gifts, I'm not really good at it, but I I have to love the people in this church. I have to love the world that God loved. There's nothing else I could do. Oh, Lord, would, 
we need, we need to pray, right? We need to ask the Lord to, to move in our hearts. So would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for the message of the cross, that you, that you love us with a, an unconditional love, that you emptied yourself and became nothing for the sake of love. Lord, would that stir our hearts to love one another, to love the people in our lives with the love that that you have for us, to be faithful to, to desire the gifts in such a way that we can use them for the benefit of one another. Lord, we, we pray all of this with the, the faith, the assurance that, that you love us. So we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.